This is the Definitely Uncertain Podcast, brought to you by Gold Rock Capital. Each week, we look at how high net worth families can improve their lives, decisions, and investments in a deeply uncertain world. We always aim to provide practical information, even if we can't offer specific investment advice. Welcome, everybody, to this week's episode of Definitely Uncertain Podcast. My name is Darren Rockman, and I'm a partner with Goldwell Capital, the 20-year-old multifamily office servicing high net worth families in Israel and around the world. And this week, I am pleased to have on Definitely Uncertain, Sam Vecht. Sam, welcome to the show. Hi, uh, good morning. Good morning to you. Sam is a fund manager at BlackRock. Uh, where he looks after emerging markets, and that's his area of expertise. Sam's been at BlackRock for uh, 20 years and uh, really understands this part of the investment universe. And what we wanted to do was to take a bit of a dive into the world of emerging markets uh, today. So, Sam, let's start with this. Uh, Personally, how did you get involved or interested in the world of emerging and frontier markets? Yeah, just just before I kick off, just to say everything I'm going to say is not uh, investment advice, and I'm speaking in a purely personal capacity and not reflecting the broader views of BlackRock. Uh, with that, well, that's okay because uh, you're personally very smart, so we're happy. Well, we're happy you can't be sure of that. You can't be. In fact, my <laughs> wife would uh, would disagree. Um, how did I get into uh, this job? Uh, by mistake. Um, everyone likes to sort of say that they had some great plan, age three, to do something. Uh, that's not the case. Uh, I applied to lots of places when I was uh, 20 in my uh, second year of university. Uh, I think I applied to 45 places and I got one interview uh, for a summer internship. So I'd love to say this is a very strategic, deliberate career path. Uh, it wasn't, depending on your view, it was random, an act of God. Um, or something else. So you, you take your religious viewpoints for yourself. Literally the random walk down Wall Street. Okay, so um, let's now switch to uh, the, the sort of subject matter. Emerging markets and frontier markets, You know, when we look at the investment universe at the moment and we look at what's going on in developed markets where you know, it's very clear that valuations have gotten very stretched, um, you know, it's very hard to find pockets of value and you know, arguably some sectors, even many sectors are in a bubble. Um, how do you see the emerging market world and the frontier market worlds? Because it behaves quite differently. Yeah, um, I, I think actually there's some commonality there. So that while you have large sections of the emerging market world where things are actually really cheap, you can buy stocks you know, on five, seven times earnings in lots of countries and lots of sectors, and we can come to that in a second, there is a significant portion and perhaps only the most liquid portion of emerging markets uh, today, which uh, has many of the attributes that you, just, uh, that you described to the developed world. So stocks that uh, have no earnings, often no operating earnings. Um, trading at um, you know very lofty valuations, very high market capitalizations, uh, big values ascribed to uh, pitch books rather than to net income. Right. Uh, in 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 the developed world, that's being generated by ultra low interest rates and really money looking for some type of return. Is the same thing happening in those more expensive parts of the emerging market world? <laughs> Uh, yeah, the same sort of driver. And I'll just add one other driver. Yes, it's low interest rates. And I think that the phenomenon is not just sort of an institutional phenomenon. It's also people stuck at home with nothing to do. Uh, and that's true in all countries or in many countries over the last year. 
you know, people's incomes have not necessarily collapsed, people perhaps getting handouts from governments, but their spending has gone down because they can't go on holiday and they can't go to restaurants and lots of things they can't do. And so what do you do with that, as it were, spare $1,000, especially when your next door neighbor has just doubled their money on the latest hot tip uh, that he heard from his next door neighbor? Uh, so there's, you know, there's been a surge of, let us say, lower quality investing globally uh, in the US and emerging markets too. And, and so how is that translating into fund flows into emerging markets? So uh, what, what you're seeing there is, yeah, um, emerging market fund flows have picked up a bit. I mean, they've been at, at a multi-year sort of low level in sort of 2020. If you think about it, uh, emerging markets have underperformed for most of the last 15 years. Uh, emerging markets at an all-time high in October 2007 and only actually regained that level uh, a month ago. So uh, after four and a half thousand days in a sort of bear market, uh, these markets finally regained where they were when, you know, just shortly after Tony Blair was UK Prime Minister. Uh, I was going to say, you know, when... Tony, exactly. Um, uh, no idea who he is. So, um, so it's really quite interesting. Um, that's true in emerging markets, obviously in the developed world. You know, for much of the last year, the S and P, Nasdaq's hit new all-time highs every third day. So it's a very different outcome uh, over recent years. That said, uh, in the last six nine months, money has come into emerging markets, but all of it, or the vast majority of it, chasing exactly the same themes, dreams, stories. Uh, and pitch books um, uh, uh, that, that's been chasing the developed world. You know, the charity sector, as I like to call it, the not-for-profit sector, uh, has been sort of the leading uh, place that's attracted flows. And, you know, the greater the losses, the better. And you're talking about mainly technology-driven companies on a growth binge, uh, not making any profit. Yeah, I mean, you can call it technology. I mean, it, it's technology in a very broad sense. I mean, some of yeah. these companies sort of only connection to technology is that they have an IT, um, and they have people employed in IT. Uh, not that they've only got great technology behind them. Uh, but, you know, anyone that can just, you know, the, almost, I say it sort of flippantly, but almost anyone that can sort of say, we're burning lots of money really quickly, um, that that's been a, a greater attribute for companies in the last six, nine months. Okay, and, and you're seeing this in China. Where, where else are you seeing this happen? You've seen, you've, you've seen it in China. You've seen it in Brazil. Um, you know, those would probably be the China's clearly the dominant feature. You see it in Korea and Taiwan to an extent, uh, but China, Brazil, uh, slightly less extent in uh, in emerging Europe, uh, and also interesting enough to a lesser extent in India. Uh, Indian market, although it's gone up, has actually been driven by something called fundamentals like earnings. Uh, and sort of an economic cycle, I know, strange concept. Um, so, you know, India is, interesting enough, has been probably the most fundamentally driven market uh, in emerging markets in, in the last year. Um, but uh, many other markets, but China has been the dominant one. Um, you know, if okay. it's got losses, it goes up. Right. So now you're sort of painting a picture of sort of two sectors. Let, let's move away from the expensive and, you know, maybe unjustifiably expensive sectors. And let's start to talk about those areas where you think there is actually traction and, and, and value and, and, and a reason to invest. Yeah. So I think it's interesting and we don't know why, um, but COVID has not really hurt the emerging world, and I'm talking sort of medically and economically, to the extent one that was forecast sort of nine, 12 months ago, uh, or to the extent that um, one would think relative to the developed world. So, you know, and we don't know what's going to happen um, in the future, and perhaps there'll be new variants, but across the emerging world, what has been surprising, and you know, you had different 
ways of dealing with with the virus. You know, in China had one sort of a big lockdown and sort of punishing strongly people who didn't sort of uh, keep to that. Korea's had a slightly different approach. Um, Africa, you know, it was kind of a completely different approach because, you know, haven't had real lockdowns. India had a lockdown for a few weeks and then they haven't really had a lockdown. Across the vast majority of emerging markets, and I stress this is for reasons we don't know, the number of deaths has been way lower proportionately to what we've seen in the US, the UK, and perhaps it's younger population, perhaps it's vitamin D, perhaps it's uh, BCG injections. I mean, we have no idea. There's lots we don't understand about COVID. But the general point is COVID has been less significant economically than one would have thought. Um, And and, and therefore, what that means for investments is that um, we're having a pretty sharp recovery in many of these countries from sort of the economic slowdown quicker than we've probably seen in the developed world. And therefore, cyclical sectors that benefit from this, you know, should do well. Um, and you know, whether you're looking at banks uh, or other four, you know, banks, industrials, cyclicals, transport, lots of different things like that, you know, are, 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 are um, should bounce. If, if there's any connection between share prices and earnings, then these sectors should do fairly well. Okay, and and, and these sectors, how have they performed over say the last six months, where you've seen? You know, emerging markets start to come back into vogue after many, many years of being sort of like, oh, you know, uh, that's where I went to lose money. Yeah, um, and may still be where you go to lose money. Um, but the, you know, they've bounced. But it's interesting when you look at emerging market returns. Uh, you know, in 2020, the top four or five stocks made up 150 percent of the return. Uh, not the sort of 60 or 70%. That, you know, the top five, six, they were all the return. So the thing is have bounced off extremely low levels. You know, and at points in March, April last year, um, you know, Brazil was back to where it was in sort of 1995, I think, and Poland and Russia. I mean, you had a whole collection of countries that were back, you know, to levels that, that you know, were seen first 15, 20 years ago. And clearly the countries with all their problems have developed quite a lot over that period of time. Right. So, yes, you had a bounce, but it's a bounce from really, really depressed levels. So uh, that, that begs the question, which is why were these markets at such depressed levels and why did they stay there so long? And I suppose the corollary to that is, is it different this time around? Yeah, uh, fair point. I, I think, you know, the last going back to where you started in a low interest rate environment uh, where people have lots of money to throw at things, they try and work out what should I invest in. And a lot of that's just been a function of whatever has worked until now. And, right. um, and you know, and these, the, you know, why on earth should I invest in deleted appropriate Latin America, emerging Europe, Asia? With all these funny countries with risks and, and and political challenges and coups and crises and capital account problems, when all I need to do is own a uh, you know a Nasdaq ETF and that gives me you know a solid twenty percent every year, um, yeah every year no, no problem close your eyes some years forty percent so um, and, and and I think that's the real question for many people you know on the one hand you've got high volatility and lower return on you know uh, with associated with emerging markets. And on the other side, you know, just by the US, then you've got lower volatility and higher return. It's kind of a no-brainer uh, until one, uh, unless one understands how finance actually works. Okay, so so that's generated the sort of shift towards the developed, mar- developed markets, and particularly the US, at the expense of other markets. Now what? Yeah, so I think we've got to ask ourselves the question, you know, is 2021 like 2020? 
And is the portfolio that did well for people in the period 2017 to 2020 the right portfolio for 2021 to 2024? Uh, I would argue that a world with Biden rather than Trump, a world with vaccines rather than no vaccines, a world with a uh, you know weaker, I wouldn't say weak, but a weaker dollar rather than a strong dollar, and a world where uh, there's going to be a lot more uh, focus globally on fiscal uh, aspects of spending um, and a world where tax rates may well be going up in lots of the developed world is a very different world to what we saw in 2020 or indeed what the world we saw 27 to 2020. And I think those are quite significant developments, slightly more, slightly less in different countries that are worth paying attention to as to why 2021 to 2024 does not equal 2017 to 2020. Okay, so I want to pick up on a comment you made about the US dollar. So we've seen some dollar weakness over the last, you know, back in sort of the middle of last year. That seems to be continuing. Uh, you know, we had recent comments by the Fed, which obviously will put more pressure on the, on the dollar. Um, how do you take that into account when you think about emerging markets? Obviously, a weaker dollar is good for emerging markets. It's good, but I think two points. Number one, um, when one invests in emerging frontier markets in general, I mean, the golden rule is if your local currency goes down 10, the market goes down 20, and you lose 30, and that happens in a few days. So there's no investing in, in, in emerging markets without taking into account the role of the currency, fixed income, uh, and politics. It's a complete nonsense. You know, I've got great returns in Quatsha. Well, who cares? Right. Um, you know, our investors, your investors are all at the end of the day looking at hard currency returns. Yeah. Uh, and so it's really important to say that. That said, you don't need the dollar to collapse or emerging markets to do well. All that you need is it doesn't just strengthen a lot. It could strengthen a bit, just, strength, just not strengthen a lot. I don't have a particularly strong view as to where the dollar's going. Um, I, as you made sense from this podcast, uh, I have quite strong views on lots of things, bar six, uh, and they are pound, dollar, euro, yen, oil, and gold. Uh, yes. And that's because I, I'm yet to work out a way of um, getting that right, even 51% of the time. Um, you know, well, those you, things. You, that, you need to add Bitcoin to that list, don't you? Well, no, no that I've got a strong view on. That's easy. Um, <laughs> that That's easy. I mean, you know, uh, how much is Bitcoin worth? I, mean, I don't know. It's worth uh, two Father Christmases, three Tooth Fairies, and four Orcs. Um, so, um, you know, it's worth whatever you like. Um, you know, and I'm about, perhaps I shouldn't say Father Christmas um, on this podcast. It doesn't mean uh, that much, um, but um, uh, especially not before Purim. But the, um, but, but the, but, but seriously, um, back to the dollar, I don't, I have no strong view on the dollar. I would just kind of think that in a world where, um, you know, there's greater fiscal spending and, um, you know, I, I'm not convinced the dollar strength, greater US fiscal setting, I'm not sure the dollar strengthens that much. Okay. So then when you're now constructing portfolios, what are, you know, you talked a little bit about some of the sectors you're interested in, banks, industrials, transport. What are some of the countries which you think are best placed, you know, over the, the coming sort of year or two? Yeah. Um, so it's interesting. Normally, I could give you a couple of emerging markets I really dislike. Um, you know, there's this, you know, people aren't pricing political risk in A or the currency collapsing in B. It's really quite interesting. Where we are today, I really struggle to find an emerging market I have a really strong dislike for. Um, I think in some places, valuations are pretty compelling for the risk. Uh, and in other places, the story is actually quite good. So in terms of good stories, I think a place like uh, Korea 
actually stands up quite well in terms of being neither China nor the US. So as tensions uh, sort of increase there, people that manufacture in China, in Korea can actually sell to both, um, which is an, an advantage. And we've just sort of seen Korea uh, exports. I think they were up a, a ridiculous 20, 25% year on year in January. I mean, it's a, a, a remarkable number. That's, you know, there's always a Chinese New Year effect, but it actually works the other way this year because last mm-hmm. year, Chinese New Year, um, was in February and this year and, and it has moved. So actually, it would, it's sort of the reverse effect. So really big numbers out there. We've seen the Taiwanese um, exports up 50%. But Korea strikes me as a quite a good place, cheap valuations, good companies, not great corporate governance, but able to sell to both China and the US. Uh, India, Philippines, Indonesia, quite good domestic growth stories in a world starved of growth. Um, there's endogenous growth in those places. I think the Chinese economy is doing perfectly okay. Not superbly, but perfectly okay. And you know, if you're buying old economy sectors in China, there's some really, uh, you know, some really good valuations and decent, not great companies there. Then you can come across to the the Middle East, uh, and I think we can have a pretty strong recovery in a place like Dubai. It's been in the doldrums for years. You may have gone there recently, like uh, half of Israel. Uh, but for those of us that have been going to Dubai for many, many years. Uh, long before it became um, uh, the place to go. Uh, I think there's stuff to be said about the UAE um, and Qatar, for that matter. Um, you know, so they're, they're, they're pretty cheap for what, for what you're buying there. Um, then you can come into sort of emerging Europe, uh, sort of Eastern Europe, be- going to benefit from sort of handouts once again from the European Union. Greece, you know, 15 years of recession now coming to an end. Stuff really cheap there. And then you can come across to uh, Latin America, where, yeah, Brazil's got political issues. Uh, but a lot of that, again, for the domestic cyclicals uh, is in the price. OK, so basically what you're saying is when you look across the emerging market spectrum, other than a small group of sort of headline companies, mainly centered around China and Brazil, where there's just, you know, it, it, it's a lot of fluff and, and just you know, quarter disease, which is rife in, in, the, uh, in the U.S., you know, the rest of it looks pretty good. It looks pretty good, but these are emerging markets. So every single yeah. day you wake up we're sort of wondering, you know, what's going to go wrong? It's not what's going to go right. Is you know, where is there going to be today's crisis? Yeah. Um, and there's, you know, you can, most countries go three to four years without a crisis. Interestingly enough, if one sort of thinks, that, thinks about crises, the vast majority of Asia hasn't had a crisis since 2009. There's been no sort of domestic crisis apart from one year, I think 50, 2015 in Vietnam. But if you look at most of the markets in Asia, they've actually had 12 crisis-free years, which concerns me because we are definitely due for a crisis in you know, at least one of those countries. Most of the stuff in emerging Europe, in Africa, in, in, in Latin America has been you know, true to form. Every three to four years, something blows up in one of those countries. Right. Right. So let's just pick up on something that you mentioned a couple of times, which is this issue around volatility in these markets. So, you know, when you look at um, you know, the, the fact that, you know, you get these, you know, these blow ups and these sort of, you know, uh, unpredictable events, what, what does an investor need to be able to generate out of an emerging market portfolio in order to make it worth taking some of the risks inherent uh, in, those, uh, in those markets? Your cost of capital when investing in emerging markets should be higher. Um, and, and woe betide the person that looks at a, at a market that's, you know, uh, in emerging markets and says, oh, no, no, this, 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 this is a safe place to invest. 
that's the most dangerous thing you can say. And, and in fact, you know, whenever I see notes, uh, a broker, so-called research notes that, you know, increased visibility leads us to increase our target price. I always get scared because uh, I, I'm, you never have increased visibility. Um, you know, that's just not how it works in the emerging markets or anywhere else. So um, the golden rule of emerging markets has been for 200 years. You know, you buy to the sounds of cannons and sell to the sounds of trumpets. That was said about the Napoleonic Wars, uh, and that's true today. Right. Um, okay. So when when high net worth, you know, the high net worth individuals that, that listen to this podcast think about the construction of their portfolios, what's the role that you see? Uh, for the emerging market piece, because you know clearly no one's going to do 100% emerging markets unless you know somewhat crazy, suicidal, or both. Um, but no, I shouldn't say things like that. I'm going to say that again. Um, I don't want to upset anybody. Um, clearly, nobody's nobody's going to have 100% of their portfolio in emerging markets. But what is the role? Yeah, so I, I think in uh, going back to the point I made earlier, the world is going to we're going to have a, an economic rebound now. Uh, after that, post COVID. Um, exactly quickly in some places, slightly so in others. But after that, where is the growth in the world? Where are you actually seeing countries that can grow on a sustainable basis without just leveraging themselves to the hill? And it's going to be in emerging markets. And therefore, it's about having access to that growth at a sensible price. And that's a really important point. Time and time again, people that buy stories, themes, and dreams in emerging markets uh, lose lots and lots of money. Uh, and that's the story of the last 25 years. So what's the role of emerging markets to give you growth in a growth-starved world um, and do it at a sensible price? Uh, that, that's really important. But be aware there's volatility. So, you know, the last thing you should do in emerging markets is get, you know, you need to have a portfolio approach, you know, asking which country should I back this year? Now, that's just not the right question because right. sure enough, if you put all your eggs in whichever country it is, there's going to be a problem. There's going to be, mm. you know, it's the golden rule is that, you know, when when, when your mum comes to you and says, you know, oh, yes, oh, Sam, you work in emerging markets. I've heard some really good things about country X. You know it's time to sell, <laughs> right. right? Has that happened recently, Sam? It's absolutely happened. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, I don't want to uh, defame my mother in public. She's a lovely lady. Um, I'm sure she but, is. But, 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 but definitely, you know, when, when she suggested it was um, time to be looking at, you know, people making PPE um, globally, uh, you know, that was probably the top of the PPE cycle. Um, <laughs> right. So, um, so if, if, if we just, I want to just sort of round this discussion around volatility with one other question, and that is, one of the issues around emerging markets is that you, very often over the last year, as we've said, the last you know, 15 years or so, you've, you've seen them trail uh, main markets or developed markets. But then when the pop happens in developed markets, suddenly there's a even bigger self in emerging markets because everybody just gets scared and everybody comes home. Um, you know, the same thing that we saw in March of 2020 when everybody physically went home, wherever they came from. Yeah. The same thing happens that, yeah. you know, emotionally with people's wallets. So how do you how do you look at that? An opportunity. Like you just have to live through that, right? You need to be long-term and not freak out uh, every single time this happens. I mean, this this is, you know, emerging markets, go down 20% every single year. In the last 25 years, I think there's only been one year where top to bottom during the course of the calendar year, emerging markets aren't down 20%. Uh, and remarkably, in that period of time, there's been not a single year where they aren't up 20% at some point, top to bottom. Um, 
80% of emerging market stocks move 40% or more every year. Right? So that's what you're playing. And, 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 and you are living in a fantasy world. Uh, if you think that you're going to get anything else and you can just buy this nice, stable collection of emerging markets, you need to be, as uh, you went back, going back to the point you said earlier, you need to be compensated for that. So there are two ways really of getting compensated for that. It's either going to be lots of earnings growth uh, or multiple expansion. Um, and, and people, you know, uh, have different views on this. Some people think, you know, you buy a stock at 100 times earnings. It's a very good idea because it can go to 200 times earnings. Um, and that's kind of been the, the views of people in, in recent years. I, I don't think that makes a lot of sense. So that's what you need to be compensated for. Long-term investing, not looking at a single country, not putting all your eggs in one basket and being prepared to ride the volatility. Okay, so I think that the key words here are diversification, appropriate compensation, uh, patience, and making sure you've allocated it right. Yeah. Okay. Well, Sam, that, that's been hugely interesting and engaging and, and also pretty funny as well. And uh, well, thank, <laughs> thank you very much that. for joining uh, the Definitely Uncertain podcast. And uh, thanks, everybody, for watching. Uh, you can get uh, you can subscribe uh, on iTunes, uh, wherever you get your podcasts, and we're obviously available also on YouTube. And we look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Sam. Thank you. Bye-bye.